I'm Savannah, like Casey said, and I am from South Carolina. So I um, got up super early um, because I didn't want to miss my six-year-old's birthday yesterday. Um, but I'm here and I'm excited to be with you guys. Um, I'm a student right now at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, I've been there for about a year and a half now, and um, I just love studying God's Word, and I know that y'all do too, so I'm excited to do that together this weekend. Um, I'm going to start out by praying for us, so if you will just join me in prayer. Father, the heavens declare your glory, and the sky above proclaims your handiwork. Lord, you have revealed your character to us through what you have made and what you've created. And Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can see your divine power and your goodness through what you've made. We also thank you for your word, for your law that is, it revives the, the heart and the soul. It's perfect. Lord, we thank you for being able to study that together today. And Lord, I pray that as we do the meditation of my heart and our hearts together would be please, pleasing and acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So um, the theme of this weekend is God with us. And we're going to be looking at, that, at this theme throughout Scripture at different points along the biblical storyline. And our first section today is going to be Genesis 1 to 3. And we're going to look at God's presence specifically at creation. Our next session, we're going to look at God's presence with Israel then God's presence in Jesus, and then tomorrow for our final session, we're going to look at God's presence through His Spirit. And as we do this, one of the goals that I would like us to shoot for this weekend is to see the Bible as one story, one story that leads to Jesus. And so even though the Bible is made up of lots of different genres, we have poetry, wisdom literature, letters, gospels, all sorts of different books make up this collective story. It's written by one divine author, and that author leads us to his son. Um, I don't know if you've heard of an author named Sandra Richter, but she summarizes God's perfect plan in scripture as the people of God dwelling in the place of God um, in the present. I'm sorry, I messed it up. The people of God in the place of God dwelling in the presence of God. So this weekend, we're going to camp out on the presence aspect, looking at God's presence with his people. Um, Y'all can go ahead and turn to Genesis 1, if you have your Bibles or your phones. Um, we're not going to have time in each session because we're kind of looking at big chunks of Scripture to go through each verse of the chapters that we're looking at. But I would encourage you, if you have time in the next day, a few days and weeks, to just spend some time reflecting on um, what we have kind of gone over in a big picture way to go back and reflect on it. Um, I'm using this image, and I'm going to kind of use it throughout the, um, the weekend to show the storyline of Scripture. So we're going to start at creation. That's Genesis 1 and 2. Then we're going to look at the fall in Genesis 3. And then we're going to end up in new creation. But I like to think of it as a journey. So if you're on an interstate or on a road, you have different mile markers. And along those mile markers um, in Scripture are covenants, things, um, ways that God has communicated to his people. And we're going to have to get our bearings straight. So whenever we open up a book of the Bible, we need to know where we're at, where um, we've been, and where we're going, essentially. Um, when I was coming here, I decided to check the weather because in Columbia, it's usually like super hot and 
Like you can get away with wearing short sleeves in the wintertime sometimes. Um, so I figured it'd be a lot, a lot colder here. It actually was about the same this weekend. But if we were going to somewhere else like Canada or I don't know, Peru or somewhere, the temperature would be very different. And um, scripture is that way. It's like we're going on a trip and when we go somewhere else, we need to know the context that we are going to. Um, and so Genesis was written in a very different time and place than our time. Most conservative scholars acknowledge that Moses was the primary author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of scripture. And that means that we need to better understand the context that Moses was writing from in order to understand what it was that he's trying to communicate. The actual dating of Genesis is debated, but generally speaking, it was written in the context of the ancient Near East, the, the world and the geographic region of the ancient Near East. So I'm going to show you a map here of the ancient Near East. Um, we don't actually have a physical location for the Garden of Eden, but Genesis does mention the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which are shown at the top here um, in northern Mesopotamia. Uh, but our context helps shape the way that we think about it. It's just like, um, I was trying to think of a good example um, if you know somebody from the generation of the baby boomers, they're going to have a very different way of thinking than, like, say, a millennial would think. Um, and knowing the way in the thought world which somebody's coming from, that, that can help us to know the questions that they're trying to answer and the questions that they're asking. So along the same lines, the culture of the ancient Near East, it was shaped by, like, the most powerful civilizations that were around it. And we see those on the map here. Um, Egypt, um, Canaan, Mesopotamia, and Sumer. These were the big like power players in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so they would have been shaping the ideas that Moses and the Israelites would have been, um, or at least they would have been the conversation partners that, that Moses would have been engaging uh, with. So after we read this text, we're going to interact with some of these realities that maybe that Moses was addressing in Genesis 1. So I'd really like it if we could maybe get some of y'all to help me read some of the longer chunks of scripture. Um, so could anybody read for me? We're going to do Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and then we're going to skip down to verse 26 and go all the way to uh, chapter 2, verse 3. So we can break it up or somebody can read the whole section. Would anybody be willing to do that? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, Genesis 1, 1 through 5, and then we're going to jump down to Genesis 1, 26, and go all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thank you. As we walk through the text together today, I'm going to try to highlight some of the significant statements that Genesis makes to the original audience. So let's just start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It may seem like a simple statement, but this is actually a really bold statement that the author is trying to make. Many of the ancient Near Eastern civilizations, they had their own creation accounts. And those would have reflected a polytheistic religion. So in Egypt, there was a creation account where this one god um, 
kind of self-evolved from primordial waters. And from that one god, other gods evolved. And then from those gods um, evolved humans and the rest of the world as they knew it. In Mesopotamia, there was another creation account where a god named Marduk, he was battling this other god, Tiamat, and he ended up winning and decided that from the blood of Tiamat, he would make humans and he would create them to be the slaves of the gods that um, were remaining. So these are, this is not the only creation account that was going around the thought world of um, the time of Genesis. So how does this relate? Just like the biblical writers have neighbors, we do too. And in order to make a truth claim, they would interact with the assumptions that their neighbors were making, and they would speak truth to those assumptions. So some of the assumptions in the thought world of Moses may have been, well, there's many gods. There's not one god. We worship lots of different gods. And these gods, they're fickle and they're unpredictable. We don't ever know how to please them or what they're doing or what they want from us. They don't actually care about humans. They created them to be slaves to them. They may have also assumed that the gods had flaws just like humans. We see that in a lot of the creation accounts as well. But think about our context. We have assumptions about God and the people around us that we do life with um, have assumptions about God as well. Many people assume there is no God. Other people maybe think that there are either many gods or maybe many paths to one God. Um, there are other assumptions like agnosticism that acknowledges there probably is a God, but we just can't know him or her or whoever. Um, other, another assumption may be that human reasoning is our highest authority. We shouldn't uh, rely on revelation from this book that claims to be the word of God. We should rely on human reasoning. The first verse of Genesis is making a big claim that their neighbors got it wrong. The world around us is actually a product of one God's creative power. And rather than being brought forth from chaos and destruction, the God of the Hebrew people created by forming order and purpose for his creation that was good for all of it. The writer of Genesis explains this in more detail throughout the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. But for now, it's important that we realize who we believe God is will determine what we believe about ourselves and about our world. Throughout the rest of this session, we're going to have two big ideas. The first one is God's good design, and that is his presence with his people in his place. And the second main idea we're going to see is that God's good design was corrupted. So for the first one, God's good design, we know that um, the seven days of creation show us a framework for God's workmanship. He's the author and he describes a pattern that includes and involves his presence. And when I say presence, I'm not talking about omnipresence, which we know God is omnipresent. The Bible affirms that. But I'm talking a presence in a qualitative and a relational way. So pre God's presence in a relational sense. God's presence is intended to be a presence of blessing from the very beginning. And how can we know this? First of all, we see God's presence was shown through God's Spirit. God's Spirit was described in verse 2 of chapter 1 as hovering over the face of the unformed waters. It's the same Spirit that Job says in chapter 27 is his very breath. The Spirit that was breathed into his nostrils, just like it was breathed into the nostrils of the first humans. 
to bring about life. The concept of God's Spirit is developed more as the Bible story continues. And we see um, later the Spirit coming and dwelling among the people of God, equipping them for certain tasks, filling his um, prophets with messages from God. God's Spirit is also called the Spirit of Wisdom in Deuteronomy chapter 34, when it falls on Joshua as the leader of Israel. We also see that Proverbs 8 recounts the creation story but by describing the wisdom of God personified in the Spirit. Proverbs 8.27 says, When he established the heavens, I, wisdom, was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. So God's good design was that his Spirit would be a presence of blessing and life for the things that he had made. We also see God's presence was shown through his creative order. Genesis 2.1 sums up the six days of creation by stating, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So there was a purposeful ordering of how God made the world. In the first three days, God creates the vessels or the domains of heaven and earth. So I'm going to show you on here, if you'll look at days 1 through 3, he creates the vessels, and then on days 4 through 6, he fills them up. So there's a correlation between how God um, created the world and how he filled it. So on day one, he creates light and separates it from the dark. On day four, he fills those domains with the sun, the moon, and the stars. On day two, he separates the waters above from below. And he, on day five, he fills them with the sky creatures and the sea creatures. On day three, he moves back the waters so that the land emerges and on day six, he fills the earth with the animals and finally with humans. So there's a creative pattern in the way that God made the world. It was intentional, and it was intended to work with, in harmony with one another. So each aspect of creation had a place and a function. It was very unlike the false accounts of the ancient Near Eastern gods. Instead, the God of Scripture created the cosmos by establishing order. Rather than bringing life from forces of chaos, he brings it through his wise word of creation. He puts chaos in its place. The world was meant to be a place of flourishing under God's presence. And order sometimes we think of as a constraining idea, but this is not a constraining idea. Instead, order is an assigning of purpose and meaning. And even in our context today, even people who deny God still long for purpose. It's who we are, and that's how God created us. Finally, God's presence is shown by God's authority. With the exception of day two, the author of Genesis highlights each day that God reflected on his work by the repeated phrase, and God saw that it was good. As creator, God is the only one who has the authority to judge whether what he made is good or not. His pronouncement of goodness also gives a stark contrast to their neighbors, whose gods created them as servants. The writer of Genesis is drawing our attention to the goodness of God and his desire to do good in and for his world. Sometimes we can scoff at the idea of authority because we have all too often seen authority abused and misused and um, I think that the people of the ancient Near East probably had the same observation because that's what their gods looked like as well, people, uh, gods who would abuse authority. But the God of the Bible exemplifies unadulterated authority that's neither um, 
tyrannical, and, nor does it make him a pushover. He exemplifies perfect authority, good authority. God then concludes the sixth day by the climactic event of the creation of the first humans. So it's worth reading this again, and I'm going to show us on our slide so we can see how often this is repeated. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So not only does God have authority over the world, but he also chooses humans as appointed representatives to serve as ambassadors under his good rule. Humans are made in his image, and the background, again, serves us well if we understand it. In the ancient Near East, kings would often place images of themselves at boundary lines in their kingdom or different places in their kingdom. So if you were moving from one place to another and you saw an image of that king there, you would know that that kingdom belonged to king so-and-so and you were under his authority. And if they were to have read this in Genesis, they would have understood that humans were created then to function in God's space as representatives of the king of creation. We are the king's representatives here. As image bearers, only human beings were given dominion over the earth. Male and female together were given this high calling, and they were to do it under God's authority. The image here shows that humans were explicitly given authority under God to rule the domain of the earth and all that is in it. Days one through six build up to this final day of creation, the seventh day. On this day, God rests from his work. Just like a king who would sit on his throne to rule his kingdom, God finished his work of creation and he rested. And he blessed the seventh day. The seventh day was actually where the story could have stopped. It was good. Everything was in order. His representatives were placed in charge, and God rested, allowing his newly created world the opportunity to flourish under his good rule. But we know it doesn't stop there. The story continues in Genesis 3, and that's going to be our second point, that God's good design was corrupted. At the beginning of Genesis 3, we already have a clue that something's not quite right. God gave humans the task of ruling the earth, but in verses 1 and following, we're introduced to a new character. Part of God's creation has already become an instrument of evil. We have a mysterious talking serpent that begins a conversation with the image bearers of God. Read with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 1. We're going to go down to verse 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. One of the first things that we notice here is that the serpent draws attention away from God's good design. Rather than acknowledging the goodness of his provision, the serpent hones in on the one thing that God prohibited. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree, any tree in the garden? The serpent challenges God's good purposes and his authority. Well, then Eve replies to the serpent, God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. This is speculation, but the text never actually says that God told her she couldn't touch it. But we do know that God emphasized the freedoms that he gave to his image bearers. But Eve and the serpent narrow in on the one restriction that God gave. So the, the serpent crawls through that window that Eve opens, and he flat out calls God a liar. He claims that you will not surely die. Actually, you're going to become like him, knowing good and evil. But let's pause for a moment to appreciate the irony. Who is Eve already like? God. He has made her into his image. But the serpent convinces her that he's still holding out on her. Being made in his image is not enough. She wants to be equal to him. So then she does what God said not to do. Genesis 3.6 tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So let's think again. Who is the only person prior to Genesis 3 to see something and call it good? God. The writer is showing us that in believing the serpent and taking the forbidden fruit, the first humans rebelled against God's good design. They didn't just want to be made like God. They wanted to be God. Instead of trusting his goodness, they decided that they were going to define what's good and evil on their own terms. Instead of ruling as their image bearers under his authority, Adam and Eve decided to seek autonomy. They, choose to live, they chose to live their own way apart from God. Therefore, God's good design was corrupted. We're going to highlight, because um, we just don't have time to go through each section of Genesis 3, but some of the, the main ideas that Genesis 3 describes that were the consequences of this, of this decision were that they knew shame. They experienced shame for the first time. Their nakedness was exposed, and they knew it. Secondly, the presence of God felt threatening for the first time. Whereas before it was described as God walking with them like a friend in the garden, but now they feared him. Number three, in obeying God's command to multiply, the woman's childbearing will now be painful. Number four, relational strife is going to exist between the woman and the man, between God's image bearers. Number five, working and keeping the garden will now happen by the sweat of man's face. So, in other words, the, the job that God gave is going to be much harder. Number six, ultimately humans will return back to the dust through death. They will die physically. And last, Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. 
maybe even the worst consequence of all, because they were away from the presence of God, the nearness that they had once experienced relationally. So Genesis 3 sets up the conflict that the rest of Scripture is going to seek to resolve. In God's good design, people were made to live in God's presence and flourish by ruling under his good authority. So there's going to be two questions that for every session from here on out we're going to explore. The first one is, how will God dwell again with his people? The second one is, how will the problem of human rebellion be resolved? I'll say it again. The first question is, how will God dwell again with his people? And the second one is, how will the problem of human rebellion be resolved? Once more, the text gives us some clues that this isn't how God intends to leave the situation. In Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The opposition between the evil serpent of Genesis and a future offspring of humanity will continue until by wounding this offspring, the serpent will finally be crushed under his feet. But that's later in the story. For now, God reassures Adam and Eve of his desire to bless them. He removes their insufficient coverings and he gives them garments of skin. God's desire to bless continued for his people after the first act of rebellion, and it continues for us today. I'd like to end each session with a line from a children's book called The Story of God with Us by Kenneth Padgett and Shay Gregory. God's desire to bless continued so he could dwell with us and we with him, always and forever, world without end.